Good morning, everyone. Well, as Steve already started mentioning, we are doing a conference here uh, on March 9th at 10 a.m. It's going to be sort of a half-day conference in lieu of we were planning to go to Israel on a tour in April, and of course, uh, we decided to... Um, to not go on that trip, just for the state of what's going on in Israel right now. But with that, there's a lot of questions, I think, going on in a lot of people's hearts and minds as to how do we, as Christians, uh, understand God's heart for Israel? And we want to come at that from a biblical perspective. And so we're going to be having some uh, teachings here, uh, specifically regarding Israel, God's plan for Israel, Israel as a people, as a nation, as a land, and all of those things. So um, you can come with lots of your questions and whatnot. There'll be a Q&A panel. It'll be a really great time. And we're working together with two ministries. One is called Chosen People International. It's this uh, long-standing ministry that does work here both in the U.S. to reach Jewish people and does work in Israel. And we're going to be working together with an organization called Ezra Foundation. And that organization was started by a Calvary Chapel pastor from Hastings, England, and so he'll be one of the speakers, and he has an English accent that is wonderful, and I don't know about you, but I just like hearing teaching from people with accents. It just, it makes you want to listen a little bit more. I don't really have one, so I don't know if you want to listen to me or not, but uh, I'm going to preach God's Word today, so open your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. You know, we're continuing on in our seven weeks series as we're looking. If you need a Bible, Gil's got some for you there. You can open them. Oh, by the way, if, if you want to just hang on to that Bible because you don't have one, keep it. It's yours. Um, but Revelation 2, we're looking at the letters to the seven churches. John had a vision on the Lord's Day on the island of Patmos, and Jesus told him to write down these letters. And so far, we've looked at two of the churches that were written to. One was Ephesus, and the other was Smyrna. And today, we'll consider the words that Jesus had for the church in Pergamum. And what I've done each week is I've given some historical context before we really dive in. Uh, it just helps us to kind of understand what Jesus was saying to these churches that existed about 2,000 years ago in history. But we obviously know that these are also words for us today. We want to hear what the Spirit is going to be speaking to us this morning. And so let me just give you a little background on Pergamum, or your Bible might say Pergamos, same thing, uh, different translations. But this was a city that was in Asia Minor. And if you remember, these letters came from the island of Patmos where John was, and that's how Jesus had told him to write down these words. He heard them directly from Jesus, and then they were delivered then along something of a postal route. So the first letter arrived in that first city of Ephesus, and then if you traveled 35 miles north up the coast, you come to the city of Smyrna, and Jesus wrote a letter to them. Those are the first two we've looked at. But then as you begin to go further north and, and then turn inland, you would come to this city called Pergamum. Pergamum was about 50 miles away from Smyrna. It wasn't like Ephesus and Smyrna, which were located along the coast. This was a city that was inland, but it still had a beautiful city. It was set upon a hilltop, and many people went to that place because it 
boasted of culture and influence. In fact, Pergamum was the political capital of Asia Minor. We know that uh, the Romans had these cities as provinces, and Pergamum was number one. There was tons of worship that was happening there, of course, worship to Caesar, and we talked about that last week. Lots of pinches of incense upon the altar, not only to Caesar, but also to Zeus and Dionysius and Athena. But one of the main gods that was worshipped in the city of Pergamum was this god named Asclepios Soter. And the god Asclepios was sort of the god of health or wellness or medicine. And there was a temple there where sick people would come at nighttime, and they would lay upon the floor of the temple to Asclepios, and their priests would release non-venomous snakes to slither across the floor because they believed that if one of those snakes crawled over you and touched your body, that you had a chance of being healed. No, thank you. (laughs) I would much rather be sick than have that happen. But Pergamum also had a library and a university, so it was a center for higher education. It, in fact, had one of the largest libraries of the ancient world with 200,000 parchment manuscripts. And the people of Pergamum were well-educated. They were medically trained. They were politically powerful and religiously diverse. And then there were the Christians, right? And because the Christians refused to participate in much of the practices and beliefs of that city, there was persecution that came upon the church. There was pressure for them to want to conform and compromise, to begin looking more like their city, Pergamum. But the Christians were not going to succumb to that pressure. They were going to hold fast to the truth of Jesus Christ and remain faithful to him. And so Jesus has a letter that he wants to write to the church in Pergamum. And as a reminder, there is sort of a structure to all of these letters. They follow a pattern. And the first is that Jesus reveals uh, an attribute of himself, something that will be relevant to what was going on in that city. Second, Jesus then commends the church for something that they were doing well. He encourages them in, in their works. And then Jesus will give a correction, something that the church needed to repent of. They needed to change this. And then lastly, Jesus gives an exhortation and a promise to those who respond to him. And the church in Pergamum is one of those churches that has both a commendation and a correction. Some of the churches only, you know, get commended, good job, other churches only get correction, and uh, this church got both, and so that's what we're going to see today. So you ready for that? All right, Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to read from verse 12 to 17, and this is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you today knowing that this is your word, and your word is true. Jesus, would you sanctify us by your word today? Will we have ears to hear what you want to say to your church? And whether we need to be commended or whether we need to be corrected, I pray, Jesus, that we would hear what we need to hear from you, Lord. Thank you for your word, that it is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, we pray that, Lord, it would pierce us in a way that heals us today. And Lord, thank you for it, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right. So in verse 12, Jesus starts with sort of the address to the letter. He says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So Jesus tells John to write a letter to the leadership of the church in Pergamum, and They are the ones who are going to get the letter first, the leaders, and then they're going to read it to the congregation. And then together as a church, they're going to have to decide how they are going to respond to what Jesus said to them. And isn't that really kind of what we do every week that we gather here on Sundays is we open the word of God and I read it and I'll teach from it and together we'll hear what God has to say to us. And then we have an opportunity every week to respond to God's word. And when we read the words of Jesus, we ask the Holy Spirit to give us the sense of them. And and always the meanings of Jesus' words demands a response from us. You will either believe these words to be true or you will not. And then you will either obey these words or at least seek to obey them in your daily life or you will not. And just the best place to start with that of receiving and believing and living out God's word, the best place to start with that is to recognize that the Bible is God's words. The Bible is a living book. You can't say that about really any other book. For instance, the 200,000 manuscripts that were in that library at Pergamum No one could say about any one of those 200,000 books that it was living. But because these words come from the living God, certainly it is. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 through 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So that's what Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamum. He's saying, I have a message for you. And the words of this message come from me, the one who has 
the sharp two-edged sword coming out of my mouth. See, we can't think about a sharp two-edged sword without thinking of that well-known scripture from the book of Hebrews, chapter four, verse 12, that says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming to you as one who is telling you the truth. And my word is truth. But let's not forget, right, how Jesus revealed himself in the first chapter of Revelation. John had this vision of Jesus, and it, it wasn't the Jesus that he remembered that he walked throughout Galilee with, but Jesus looked different here. It says that he had hair that was white like wool, that he had eyes that were like a flame of fire, that his feet were like burnished bronze and his voice like the roar of many waters. But do you remember what John saw coming out of Jesus' mouth? Revelation 1.16 says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when John saw that, do you remember what John did? Hey, nice sword. <laughs> no, Jesus fell down like a dead man. We, of course, know that Jesus comes to John as he's lying there prostrate at his feet. And Jesus puts his hand on John and comforts him and tells him to write down these letters. And Jesus said to John, I want Pergamum to know that I am the one with the two-edged sword that comes out of my mouth. And he's saying, I want Calvary Chapel Palace Verdes to know that I am the one with a sharp, two-edged, five-foot-long war sword coming from the location where my words come out. Do you know that, church? That those words that are on the pages of your Bible right now are the words of Jesus. Maybe they're black, maybe they're red, but they're just not ink on a white page. They are the living words of Jesus. Whether those words are on your YouVersion Bible app or, or you're just looking at them on the screen behind me as they get put up when I read. But do you understand that when I say, let's read Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 through 17, that these are the true and living words of Jesus. And that when these words are read, there is a blessing in it because we're literally hearing God speak to us. And when God speaks to us, it demands a response. And I've often quoted this scripture to you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. I love this verse, and I believe this church understands and believes this as true. Paul says to the church in Thessalonia, and we always thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Therefore, 
what Jesus wants to say to Pergamum is truth. And he wants to speak these truths to you and me today. And so in verse 13, Jesus is going to first commend the church. He's going to encourage them. And we all love to be encouragement. We all love to hear the good news before we have to hear the bad news. And so we're going to start here in verse 13. Jesus says to them, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now, like the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamum had to bear up under persecution for the sake of the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. They dwelled in a city where there was persecution, because of false religion and because of corrupt government. They had snakes crawling on sick people. They had 200,000 manuscripts to educate its citizens. They had altars to Caesars and temples to a plethora of Greek gods and goddesses. You know, the primary means of worship to these false gods was illicit sex. And you know that a god is false, when the worship of that God is illicit sexual acts being given to an idolatrous image. And that's exactly what was happening in Pergamum. And Jesus says, my beloved in Pergamum, I know where you dwell. I know the city that you live in and that it's a dark place. I know that it's such a dark place that it is actually where Satan's throne is, that Satan lives in your city. Now, this has left many Bible teachers scratching their heads. Was, was or is Pergamum the literal place where Satan had a throne that he ruled from? Kind of. You know, in the same way that Satan was about to throw Christians in Smyrna into prison, but it was really the Roman government that was persecuting the church in that way. Or, or in the same way that Satan had a synagogue in Smyrna be... Uh, but that it was really the unbelieving Jews who were persecuting the church in that way. You know, there was persecution in Pergamum. There was this crushing pressure that was coming down upon the saints, and, and it was such an intense darkness. There was such a stronghold in that city that Jesus said, Satan has a throne in your city. Now, something we have to understand about Satan is that Satan is not like God, not even close, not worthy to be compared. You know, sometimes we think about God and the devil as in terms of dualism, that God and the devil are just sort of duking it out, and we're all just kind of wondering who's going to win, right? And it goes into overtime, like last seconds left, and you kind of wonder which, which side's going to win. That is not at all the case. We know who wins? And Satan's throne in no way rivals God's throne. Amen. They are not equals, not even to compare. Because you know what? God can be everywhere, all at once. Satan cannot. But he wants you to think he can. God can know everything all at once. Satan cannot but he wants you to think that he can. 
God can do anything that he wants, whenever he wants, all at once. Satan cannot, but he wants you to think that. And Jesus said to the church, I know where you live. I know the environment that is around you. Satan has a throne. He has a stronghold in your city, and there are many who are deceived by him. But I'm coming to you with the truth. Do not be deceived. Do not fear Satan. Jesus is saying, I I completely understand the spiritual warfare that you're facing in your home. And it may seem like you are in the darkest, scariest, most perverse and deceptive place. Jesus says, I I know all that, yet you hold fast to my name. What an encouragement that is. To be commended in that way. Jesus didn't say, you know what? Satan has set up shop in your city. You should get out of Dodge. Pack your bags right now and like run. No, but he says, I know where you dwell, which means to live with permanence, that that you live and dwell in that city and and that you're not running away from it. Uh, Because, you know, Jesus never says to flee the devil. Do you know that? He says, flee youthful lusts, flee sexual immorality, flee all these things, but he never says to flee the devil. Instead, Jesus always says, resist the devil and he will flee from us. Because you know what? You can go to some tiny town in Montana. The devil's there too. Sorry, that was the inspiration of the Spirit. Not in my notes. Didn't say it first service. But I just feel like I had to say it. You know what I mean? Jesus knows where we live. He knows the city and the state and the country. He knows all of those things. And yet he's saying, you hold fast to my name. What an encouragement. Jesus knows how they had resisted the evil one, so much so that even one of the members of their church died as a martyr because he resisted and was faithful unto death. Look at verse 13 again. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan Jesus said to them, when the pressure of persecution came to you, when, when, when this pressure from Satan came, you did not deny my faith. You held fast to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. You continued to confess that Jesus died and rose again and is coming again for his church. And when people wanted to deny Or downplay Jesus as Lord. You said, no, Jesus is my God and my Savior. And then Jesus speaks about this man named Antipas. Antipas was called a faithful witness. Witness is where we get the word martyr. And Jesus says that Antipas was killed among the believers in Pergamum. We don't know really much at all about Antipas beyond what Jesus says about him here. Tradition says he was boiled to death. But scripture tells us what his name was, and his name can be translated against all. And it suggests that he lived out his name. He didn't compromise in his confession to Jesus, uh, but he remained faithful to the words of Jesus, so much so that he resisted 
sin to the point of death. And you know what? The same words, faithful witness, that are used here of Antipas, you know who else those words are used for? Jesus in the book of Revelation. So Antipas had been conformed to the image of his Savior and had partaken in the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ and was faithful even unto death. This church was commended for that even in the midst of spiritually dark and demonic environments. Praise God for churches that hold fast like that and do not deny the faith even in dark days. You know, I kind of wish that we could just wrap the letter up right there, and that, but that's really only one side of the two-edged sword. That's the commendation, but now we come to the correction. In verse 14, Jesus says, but this I have against you. You're like, ah, oh, right? You hear those words, you're like, oh, Jesus, don't say those words to me. This I have against you, because we want to get away from those words. And I, I'd be very happy in my flesh to close up the book and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you very much for that great encouragement. I'm going to go now. But if Jesus says, but this I have against you, we need to sit under that and listen and see if we will have ears to hear that he might be speaking to us. Does Jesus have something to say to you that he wants you to correct Let's find out, verse 14 through 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Jesus has a few things against this church, not one thing, but a few things, and he's going to tell them what those things are, and it has to do with certain teachings that were bringing moral compromise into the church. The two teachings were the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and you're like, oh, phew, I've never heard of those teachings, so this doesn't apply to me, right? Not so quick. Why don't we listen as we begin to explain what the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans really is, and let's consider whether we have heard this sort of teaching. Let's consider even if we've believed this sort of teaching, and most certainly we want to know that if we have taught this sort of teaching, we want to repent. So first, the teaching of Balaam. Jesus said, you have some in the church, not all of you, right? Some of you in the church who hold the teaching of Balaam. And I am against that teaching. And to find out what Jesus meant by this, you'll have to refer back to the Old Testament story of Balaam and Balak, which can be found in Numbers chapter 22 through 25. So if you go and read Numbers chapter 22 to 25, because you want to know more about what this teaching of Balaam is, which you can find in Numbers chapter 22 to 25, and when you go and read the 25th, 22nd, 23rd, 24th, and the 25th chapter of the Old Testament book that is called Numbers, you're going to discover what the teaching of Balaam is. So you're going to have to go read it for yourself. And not right now. Everybody's like flipping and scrolling. No. At a later point, go read those stories. 
Now, let me give you a synopsis of what happens in Numbers 22 to 25. The Israelites had come out of Egypt, led out of that slavery, and they were traveling through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And they came to the plains of Moab. And all the people were encamped there. All the Israelites who had journeyed out of Egypt and were going into Canaan were there in this big, broad plain. And the king of Moab, whose name was Balak, saw this. And he was worried that Israel might take over their land. And so he sent for a man named Balaam. And Balaam was uh, further north. He was the son of Baor and was something of a prophet. Everyone knew that when Balaam would bless people, they would be blessed. And when Balaam cursed people, they would be cursed. And so Balak, the king of Moab, was willing to pay Balaam a lot of money to come down to Moab and to curse Israel. And so Balak summoned for this prophet and said, I want you to come. God warned Balaam not to go, spoke to him and said, don't go down. I have blessed these people and you cannot curse them. But he goes anyways. And on his way there, he is stopped in a vineyard by an angel with a sword. And he's riding upon the donkey and the donkey stops because it sees the angel. And Balaam starts beating the donkey and then the donkey starts talking to him. You gotta go read the story, it's very interesting. But once Balaam arrived to Moab, he tries to curse the Israelites. But God instead changes the words of Balaam, and he ends up pronouncing a blessing over Israel. Well, Balak gets super mad about this, because like, dude, I'm paying you to come and curse these people, and you're coming down here, taking my money, and and blessing them. And so they try it again. They go to a different section, you know, where they can only see part of the people of Israel, just the, maybe a lesser people. And so he goes and says, now curse them. And Balaam again tries to curse the people, but uh, lo and behold, he blesses the people of Israel again. And finally, after a third attempt is made, sure enough, Balaam blesses God's people, Israel, and he ends up cursing the other nations that were against the people of God, including the Moabites. Now Balak's really angry. But then Balaam teaches Balak, he's like, I know you want to curse these people, Israel, but you know, God, these are the people of God, these are the people of Israel, and but there is a way that you can bring a curse to them because their God said, if you obey me, I will bless you. But if you disobey me, I will curse you. So we cannot curse them, but they can bring the curse upon themselves. So if we can't attack them from the outside, you know what we can do? We can corrupt them from the inside. So here's what you should do, Balak. You should send all of your Moabite women into the camp of Israel, and you should have the women sexually seduce the men of Israel And then the men of Israel will turn from their God and begin to practice sexual immorality. And they'll also, quite frankly, worship the false idols of these women. And that is what Balaam taught Balak to do. And so when we come back to these words of Jesus in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 2, he says, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So what he 
taught them, of course, was that God won't curse his own people, but the people can bring defeat upon themselves because their God is holy and he must discipline his people and he must judge sin. And so if you want to bring the judgment of God or at least the chastisement of God upon these people, then why don't you send your women in to seduce them? And so they did, and so the Israelite men fell for that. And 24,000 men of Israel died from a plague as a result of Balaam's teaching. The teaching that says if you sexually seduce God's people, then they'll turn to idolatry. If you can't defeat them from the outside, then corrupt them from the inside. God won't curse his own people, but, but they can bring their own defeat upon themselves if they compromise God's commands by practicing sexual immorality specifically. So let's define sexual immorality for a moment because we want to know what God is saying here. God teaches in his word that sex is to be between one man and one woman who have been joined together in a covenant that God calls marriage. And anything that is outside of that God-given design for sex, which is to be in marriage, is sexual immorality. So sex before marriage, the Bible calls fornication. Sex between uh, two people that you are not married to or having sex with someone that is not your own husband or wife, the Bible calls adultery. Sex between two men or between two women, the Bible calls homosexuality. And the Bible takes those sexual acts and he includes them together in this word that is the word porneia, which is where we get the word pornography. And God says, this is sin. Because God created sex and God has much to say about it. And what he says about sex is true and good. See, God created sex to be in marriage for two wonderful purposes. God designed sex for pleasure, and God designed sex for procreation, for having fun and for making babies. <laughs> but mankind, through Satan's deception, has perverted God's design for marriage and sexual intimacy and have brought in counterfeits. Sexual immorality and teaching that these things are okay and that God's fine with it. And God says, I'm against that teaching. And it's why tonight we're starting a teaching series on God's design for a thriving marriage. But look, what, what is it that was taught in the church of Pergamum? And what is it that is being taught in churches today that Jesus is against regarding sexual immorality? Well, when churches don't teach the Bible and they say that you can have sex before you're married, you know, God's fine with that. He'll, he'll still bless you. Go for it. Just try to be committed. Or, or when churches do not teach the Bible and they say that you can have multiple sexual partners, that God's not going to bat an eye at it, that God just wants you to be happy. Or when churches don't teach the Bible and they say that men can have sex with men or that women can have sex with women, that God is love and love is love, 
or, or pornography, you know, pornography doesn't hurt anyone, you know, it's something that is quite innocuous that you can do in your own privacy that, that you can find satisfaction. Heck, you can have sex with whoever, whenever, and with whatever you want. God's fine with it. Or at least he just doesn't take it all too seriously. He gets it, right? This is the teaching of Balaam. And God is against those who teach such things. And perhaps there are some in this church who are teaching or who are believing these lies. Whether you're teaching it with your words or you are believing it by your actions, Jesus is saying, I have that against you. See, God created sex. It's good. It was before the fall, and he created it for his good pleasure, uh, and for our good pleasure and for his good purposes, and yet mankind wants to change it. And if, if we don't repent of that and live under God's holy and good design, we will not thrive. This is what God is speaking to us. And before, you know, we go on and you're sitting here thinking that this is just really like archaic teaching and you're like, well, this guy needs to like get with the times. Go read a history book. And the Bible's a great history book. Do you really believe that this teaching of God being against sexual sin and compromise, especially sexual sin and compromise in the church, that this is some new thing that we've made up so that the church can have some sort of bigoted power trip? Are you kidding me? No way. Pergamum celebrated sexual immorality as a form of worship. From history, I would think that the sexual immorality that existed in the first century was as bad, if not worse, than what we see in our culture today. There's nothing new under the sun. But, but Jesus isn't addressing sexual sin and sexual immorality in the culture. He's, he's not talking to the world. He's not talking to the culture. He's speaking to his church. Jesus has this against the church. And you know, the church in Pergamum had to go against the stream of culture if it wanted to hold to a biblical view of marriage back then. You know, if, if they were to believe, as the Bible says, that sex is to be between one man and one woman until death do you part, you might be very well persecuted to death for holding that view. And how far are we from the days where I could be arrested for this sermon and, and since I've had the words of Jesus spoken very plainly to me, you know, you've been sitting under it for maybe about eight minutes. I've been sitting under it for about eight days as I've been preparing for this message. And it's not like I'm like, oh, I'm so excited to teach this section. You know, like, I understand that what I've just said is completely going against the grain of what is being taught in our world and even being taught in some churches what is being believed, what is being lived out. Uh, and yet, what I've seen is, these are Jesus' words. And, and I've seen the sword in his mouth, and, and all he has to do is show it to me, and I'm saying, okay, Lord, I've heard it. And like the prophet Ezekiel, I can say, okay, the blood is not on my hands. 
As I've been faithful to give you God's word, I have spoken it plainly to you. But the teaching of Balaam is the teaching that you can live a sexually immoral life. You could live an idolatrous life and God doesn't mind it. In fact, he celebrates your sexual choices. He just wants you to be happy. Let me tell you, church, God doesn't just want you to be happy. God wants you to be holy. Yeah, he wants you happy, but the devil has deceived many into thinking that sexual restraint won't make you happy. Are you kidding me? It's the way you thrive in life. It doesn't take much to know that sexual sin makes people very, very, very unhappy. And and again, I need to emphasize this point. We're not talking about people in the world. This is a message for the church. So if you're a Christian here, this message is for you. If you're not a Christian, this is the word of God spoken plainly. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that he's died for your sins and he's risen from the dead. And today you can come into a relationship with Jesus and you can begin to walk out his way of life and it's the best thing ever. But for those of us who are Christians, this is a message for us that we would not compromise in God's view of sexuality. And Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, a church that was sort of dealing with this sort of compromise in the church. And he wrote to them saying, do not associate with sexually immoral people. And he had to write them back because they misunderstood him. He thought he was saying not to associate with sexually immoral people just in general, like in the world. And Paul's saying, no, I'm talking about sexually immoral people who call themselves Christians and are yet doing the things that God has said not to. And so what he's saying is, you know, if you were to not associate with sexually immoral people, you'd have to leave the world. I'm talking about those who call themselves brothers, those who call themselves sisters, those who name the name of Christ and yet are living in open, prideful, rebellious, unrepentant sexual sin. I'm saying do not even eat with such a one. And I think the church got the message. And then in verse 15, Jesus says, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It's less clear what the teaching of the Nicolaitans was about, but most commentators believe that they also approved of sexual immorality in their teaching. But the error came down to a teaching that comes sort of from its name where they wanted to separate the clergy from the laity. They wanted there to be sort of this spiritual hierarchy in order for you to have access to God. And God is certainly against that teaching. The Bible says there is one mediator between God and man, and it is Jesus Christ. And there's never to be the teaching in the church that says a person cannot confess, repent, and be forgiven through having direct access to Jesus Christ. This teaching that says you have to come through the clergy, you have to come through the holy people if you want to confess, repent, or be forgiven. Direct access to God is only for a select group of people. And can I tell you this morning that if you have been convicted over the teaching of Balaam, 
then don't fall for the teaching of the Nicolaitans that says you can't take that sin right to Jesus today. That you got to, you know, come through a church. You've got to go through our program. You've got to come through our teaching if you want to get right with Jesus. No, you can get right with God today by going straight to Jesus, confessing your sins to him, and he will be faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness because there is nothing that can wash away your sins but the blood of Jesus. And you don't need to go through someone, you know, I'm not going to be standing at the door after service and everyone's going to come out and, and are you teaching the doctrine of Balaam? Are you teaching? And, you know, you've got to come confess your sins to me because, you know, of course, you realize it, right? I'm the holy man up here <laughs> who's never struggled with any of these sins. You know, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, don't be deceived. Do you not know that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, or a sexual, uh, homosexuality, or the greedy, or the liars, or the drunkards, or the idolaters, that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you know what? When I look at that list, I have been guilty of seven out of those ten sins. But I love the next words that says, and were some of you, but you have been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we were to really have all of our sins here revealed and exposed, it would be an unclean thing. But Jesus washes away our mess. He makes us right with God. And he separates our sin as far as the east is from the west. And he, though your sins be as crimson, come, come, I will make them white as snow. And Jesus is saying, you can come to me today and I will wash away your sins. But, but friends, know who it is you're coming to. You're coming to him who has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And this is what Jesus said to Pergamum, I have these few things against you. And, and you need to repent. That's what Jesus is saying to us today. You need to repent. And if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This is what Jesus is saying. There are some who are sexually immoral among you. There are some who are teaching that sexual immorality is not an offense toward God. God doesn't mind what I'm doing. It's the church that needs to get with it. There, there are some who are idolaters because they would rather worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. There are some who feel that they have the authority to say, you know, God's word doesn't say that. Or they feel they have the authority to withhold these truths from God's word. And it's why, you know, we go through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Because you know what? On any given Sunday, if it was up to me, I wouldn't choose to preach this message. But, but if this is the message of Jesus that he has for the church, it is a message that we all need to hear. And if it has convicted you, then you need to repent. And please know, church, there's a very big difference between conviction and condemnation. 
I'm not looking to condemn anyone because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is conviction in Christ Jesus. And the great difference that I like to say about conviction and condemnation is conviction, you realize that you have sinned, but conviction draws you near to God for him to heal you and restore you and mend you. Condemnation, on the other hand, you still realize you're a sinner, but the devil wants you to believe that you need to run away from God, that you need to go away from the church, that you don't belong, that, that you're, you're, you're condemned already, and, and it drives you away from God. So the great difference between conviction and condemnation is, are you being drawn to Jesus, or are you being drawn away from Jesus? And this is his message that he's saying I'm here to draw in those who will repent. But those who will not repent of their sin, but are proud in their sin and will continue to teach these false ways, I will come and I will war against them with the sword out of my mouth. And it is such a sharp two-edged sword. The sword that can either comfort the afflicted or afflict the comfortable. How has the sword been used for you today? See, we most certainly ought not to be putting a stumbling block before others by way of sexual sin and idolatry because Jesus says that if anyone causes one of these little ones of mine to stumble, it would be better if a millstone were put around their neck and they were drowned in the deepest part of the sea. Is Jesus looking at us with flames of fire in his eyes? Because look, Jesus wants to purify his church. Because the church is Jesus' blood-bought bride, and it's holy unto him. We have an opportunity today to repent of sexual immorality and idolatry, putting things in the way of Jesus. And, And... This call to repent isn't just for those who practice such things, it's also for those who approve of those who practice such things. Romans 1 tells us that. And so Jesus is saying, get this teaching out from among yourselves that sex and idolatry is no big deal. And I'm not going to be one to stand here and lord over and conquer over and judge people like the Nicolaitans, because I know God is my judge too. But I know that he has shown me grace and mercy through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that, church, that Jesus is calling you to repent and to be washed clean of sin. We have that opportunity. We have that choice. He says, therefore, repent. If not, I'll come soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Uh, All I need to see is just to see the sword and say, nope, I'm good. Thank you. God has searched us with his word. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must give an account. And so if you want to repent of your sins today and come to Jesus and be washed clean of your idolatry, to be washed clean of your sexual immorality, it is simply coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I surrender my truth to your truth. Jesus, I surrender my teachings to your teachings. 
Jesus, I surrender my way to your way. I surrender all to Jesus so that I can have all that you have to offer me. I want nothing less than what you give Jesus. And to say, I surrender. Because when Jesus says, I have a sword coming out of my mouth and I will fight against them, you don't want to fight with Jesus. Because guess what? He's going to (laughs) win. It's much better to say, I surrender Jesus and I want to be with you and in you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If God has spoken to you today, you have an opportunity to respond. But we have one little last part, one that ends in such a beautiful way, because it would really be a bummer if we just ended right there, huh? We want to end on verse 17 that says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The one who conquers, that's the one who has come to Jesus in repentance and confession and has held fast to the name of Jesus. That is the one who overcomes by faith through the grace of God. And Jesus says, come and I will give you some hidden manna. Manna was the food that God fed the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. Food that sustained them even after they sinned sexually. Rather than eating the food sacrificed to idols, he's saying, I have provision for you. I have manna. I have hidden manna. Jesus said in John's gospel that he is the bread of life. And if you eat of him, you will live And whatever this hidden manna is that speaks of God's provision and satisfaction, it is given to those who have been faithful and who will arrive in heaven. But that's not all he'll give. He'll also give a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What is this white stone? You know, there's quite a few ideas about what this white stone will be, and of course, I know exactly what it is, so let me tell you what, let me tell you, no, of course, I don't actually exactly know what it is. Now, the point of this promise is that when we overcome, we'll find out. There's something that our hearts long for this, because we crave intimacy, we crave that connection, and white stones were used at that time in Pergamum when they had these performances, these great amphitheaters, they were given as tickets into special events. And so perhaps that's what it means. White stones were also used as trophies when you completed a race. White stones were also given uh, in court where a black stone would be given if you were guilty and a white stone would be given if you were acquitted of your guilt. Any one of those could have uh, spoken to the church that was in Pergamum But the interesting thing, the part that we all want to know about is what is this new name written on the stones that no one knows except the one who receives it? I'd like to say I know, but I don't really totally know. And like I said, we will find out. But what I gather from this is that Jesus is speaking to our desire for intimacy. See, we turn to sexual immorality because we crave intimacy, but it doesn't deliver. We turn to idolatry because we desire a special connection, but it doesn't supply. 
But what God is saying is if you find it in me, this connection and this intimacy that your soul craves, what I will give to you is unmatched. And you know how in marriage you might have a special name for your spouse? You know, my wife and I have these names that we have for each other, and I'm not going to tell you what they are. But we also have these fun little names for our children. And, you know, if you're close to my family, then you know who Papa Chanch is, right? Papa Chanch is brothers with Bubba. Their sister is Wawa, right? You would know these names of my children if you were in my family or close to my family, right? And and so in this sense... What God is saying to us is, are you in the family of God? Do you know God as your father and Jesus as your brother? Do you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you that is convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and is also bearing witness with your spirit that you're a child of God? Do you have this, you know, anyone who looks at my boys will know that they belong to me because there's a family resemblance, right? And, And what this is sort of saying is Jesus saying, I've spoken the truth today so that you can look like me, that you can bear this family resemblance. And so So continue to hold fast to the things that I've said are good and get rid of the things that I've said are harming you. And I know that Jesus has seen me with his two-edged sword, and I know that he has seen you, and it's sharp. And I know that I want to be like Antipas. I know I want to have that name. You know, Antipas means against all, but when Antipas got to heaven, he got a white stone with his new name. I wonder what it is. Antipas knows. And and will you be one who is faithful to Jesus, holds fast to the truth of God's word and the testimony of Christ so that when you get to heaven, you'll eat of that manna and you'll get that stone that has that name that's between you and Jesus. And I can't wait for Jesus to use that name. I want to know what it is. I want to hear him say it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time. God, I ask that you would work in our hearts, Lord, to turn us back to you. But Lord, I know that there are some who are holding fast to your name and they're being faithful. Lord, help them to endure with strength, Lord. Help them to stay steadfast, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you know exactly what each person needed to hear today. I pray that we had ears to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, as we enter into the time of worship, I got a call from a friend this week asking me how I was going to sort of call people to a response of this message. And I was thinking about that all week, and this is just sort of how I think Jesus would want you to respond, is you've heard his words, haven't you? You have if you've had ears to hear, and perhaps today you want to respond by turning to Jesus for the first time. You want to surrender all to him and begin calling him your Lord and Savior, and today you can do that. Today you can be saved, and your eyes can be opened to these truths, and you can walk with Jesus. For some, it's 
you've heard the commendation. You, Jesus knows where you live. He knows the struggles that you face. And you need to be commended and encouraged to stay strong and to stay steadfast in the way you've been walking. But then others, perhaps among us, there are some here who maybe needed to be corrected today. And if Jesus corrected you, then today you can respond to him. You can go directly to Jesus, confess your sins to him, and he will wash you clean. But let's not go out of this place without having received what Jesus wants us to do. So let's all stand together and close with this last song.